This show was made at Access Radio Taranaki with help from New Zealand On Air. To find more local content, go to our website, accessradiotaranaki.com. Konnichiwa New Zealand and welcome to all my listeners at Access Radio Taranaki, Coast Access Radio, Radio Hawke's Bay, Arrow Radio Masterson and I'm your host Neville Wallace broadcasting from Hara for the next 30 minutes. Today I have four guests, Nuffield Scholar Kerry Walsnop, Philip Duncan, Barbara Kuriger and Waitaki Councillor Jim Hopkins. As always, time is the essence of our programme. Today Kerry Walsnop completes her Nuffield Scholarship talk with me with the second part of last week's talk with part of this week's talk relating to farmer climate change commitments. Well, let's continue with our interesting conversation with Kerry Warsnop, 2023 Nuffield Scholar. It blows me away, Kerry, because the thing that I see out of all this, farming when agricultural products was our number one export until the tourism gets back on track, but you've got to take away those that leave the country to tour another country against those that come into the country. I don't know what that margin is. Yeah, so I think part of what has made farming in New Zealand, part of what has attracted the the kind of circumstances that we find ourselves in is exactly the fact that we are the biggest um, economic driver. If you look at it, Australia, for example, you've got a massive energy industry, absolutely enormous. It dwarfs the agriculture industry. If you look at Canada, similarly, enormous energy industry, in spite of the fact that they have millions of hectares of arable land. You've got all of these countries in the world that have enormous industry, and they have, by and large, industries that are not, uh, by nature, you know, regenerative, they're not um, based on nature. And so in most of those countries, that is what is attracting their attention. They're far more interested in, in industrial processes and, and all of the different hard environmental interventions. In New Zealand, because farming is so big, it has attracted all of the attention in spite of the fact that in other countries it's seen as the opportunity. I think we probably would be in a di- different position. If, if we had England's population, for example, our, our profile would look very different, uh, probably even if we had the same amount of farming, but you would have a lot more activity that wasn't farming, and it would mean that it's just less of a big target to attract attention. Uh, but we, we really, we've not done a good job of benchmarking what we do. I went so many places where people were talking about New Zealand farming in a way that I'd never heard anyone talk about New Zealand farming. You know, they're talking about us with a sense of awe. They're talking about doing things that are now new to them that we were doing 40 or 50 years ago. For them, it's, it's a new environmental practice, and for us, it's just best practice. It's just what you do. And I don't think many New Zealanders realise this. I think they look at water quality and they go, oh, my gosh, this is really terrible. They don't necessarily look at the broader picture of what this production system looks like in other places in the world. And I was really trying to get a grasp on what 
what comparative figures look like in other countries. And I didn't get a, I didn't really get an opportunity to do that. But I remember being quite shocked in Ireland, looking at their water quality and the proportion of their waterways that were good or excellent versus poor. And knowing as I do the kind of land that they farm, knowing that they are far wetter than us, knowing that they are at least as intensive and, and certainly that they have a lot more peatland, I went, wow, what does good mean in your context relative to what good means in our context? And I think it's worth understanding that because we we can make improvements, yes. We need to understand, I think, though, where are we ahead of the pack? Can we at least acknowledge that? Because it gives us a starting point. It gives us a point where you've actually got farmers engaged and feeling hopeful about what more they can do instead of feeling as though they need to essentially just avoid all scrutiny because nothing they do can appease you. You know, that's not a healthy place to be. We need to move away from that. We need to, we need to find more optimistic ways to pursue change <laughs> so that we actually get, you know, we get some enthusiasm back. Well, perhaps we may, but just to finish, tell us about overseas farmers, countries, attitude towards New Zealand's approach to uh, net zero, perhaps we could call it. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> so they really probably have no idea about our approach to net zero. You'll be aware that every country in the world has some variant of an approach to net zero. Uh-huh. Yeah. They are quite interested in our attempts to tax our livestock emissions I mean, I was in a lot of countries. All up, I think I was in 11 countries. In not one country did I hear anyone even remotely echo anything like what we're proposing to do. Countries, quite the contrary was the case. They could sign up to join a program with a, a carbon reduction offset scheme where anything they did on their farm which reduced their emissions resulted in them being remunerated. So the scale of just how far out of step we are is quite extraordinary, even with countries that do have really ambitious reduction plans. They are planning on buying out those farmers. They are planning on essentially leaving no one worse off. If anything, a really high awareness of the opportunity that agriculture provides as a solution. I didn't hear anywhere that the methane from ruminant animals is a problem that requires us to essentially provide an an additional cost to farmers. When I ask people, you know, why do you not take this approach, their response was that farmers couldn't afford it. And that if they were oh. going to provide reductions, that farmers needed to be helped to provide those reductions, or else there wouldn't be farmers anymore. And I thought, well, we have the same problem. It's just that no one seems to care if there'd be no farmers anymore. So just a very different approach, a much more human-centered approach. Certainly not the, I would almost call it puritanical view that we have in New Zealand that the only solution is that you must pay money and that that will somehow compensate New Zealand for the fact that you are a polluter. There's not even a narrative around 
animals being pollution overseas. I was in a lot of countries, and by and large, they're all looking at land-based solutions. They're looking at uh, reincorporating animal manure as, as a natural addition to tillage soils. They're looking at weaving biodiversity in with different strategies to increase water quality. They're trying to marry up holistic environmental solutions and looking for ways in which there's an and-and, where farmers do better, the environment does better, the climate does better. That's, to me, why they don't have the likes of groundswell. It's why they don't have, there's no tractors in the streets in most of these countries, because while there's a lot being expected of them, there's an enormously diverse way in which farmers are able to respond. And in New Zealand, we've picked only one way. We've said you will pay. In a year like this year, where a whole swag of farmers are working all of this year for nothing, I mean, you can see why farmers not not that wrapped about that prospect. I mean, there's no other business, I don't think, in the country where you would expect people to work for nothing and still be smiling at the end of it. And yet, it's <laughs> common in farming, right? We could go on all blooming night talking about the problems of farming around the world, what we do it's, here, but... Don't get me wrong, there's <laughs> opportunities. Thank you for your time, Kerry, and I know you've got other guests down. I better let you go. Thank you very much for that, Kerry. It's Let's right. hope we get some traction out of this and inform the masses that don't understand and at the moment we're in limbo land because we don't know whether we've got a government or blue or red or whatever. Relax and take in the fact that New Zealand is globally closer to the sun than any other country on the globe as Philip Duncan reminds us that our UV levels are much higher than any other country and why we should take more care when we go out in the midday sun. Good morning Philip Duncan. Which is the biggest threat to the Kiwis? Cyclone Mel? or that purple people eater called higher UV levels? Yeah, very good question. Um, and I would say the, the big purple eater, the UV rays, you know, they, they appear on our weather maps as this big purple circular blob. And as we um, move around the sun, as we go into summer, uh, the, the UV rays increase in the southern hemisphere. And so we're, we're only just getting started now. And yet for the last month or two, I've been hearing of people I know who are smart, intelligent people being sunburned. And so it's a very, very timely reminder that our UV rays are already high to extreme. Um, we're already well above what most other countries get to at the very peak of their summer. And we haven't even started summer yet. So it's just that reminder to be sun smart. And I've grown up with this. You know, I've grown up with the sun smart stuff. You know, I hear it and I sometimes ignore it. But um, it's, it's worth really thinking about what that message actually is. And it's just simply stay out of the sun as much as you can. You know, that's really the simple message. And it's very hard as a farmer if you're out there building a fence and you've got to sit in the, you know, stand out there in the sun for an entire day. How can you protect yourself? And it's just thinking a little smarter around that. And, you know, we talked recently, Neville, on a in that uh, Zoom chat, the, the lady from the Melanoma Foundation talking about more than just suntan lotion, things like, you know, wearing big floppy hats. Um, think about putting an umbrella up. You know, I see that all the time when you're driving around New Zealand 
and the guys from Chorus are out there fixing the phone lines, and they'll have a sun umbrella over the top of them. Why, why can't you do that out on the farm? You know, figure out a way of having shade. Most of you have tractors. There must be a way to figure out you can put some shade up around you as you're working. So just small things that make a big, big difference, uh, especially as we get older in life, that sun damage creeps up on us. It's a little bit like smoking cigarettes. You know, you can smoke a cigarette and you don't die from it, but you keep doing it over time. It's going to have an effect on you. No different with ultraviolet rays. It is a form of radiation. And just like when you're at the dentist and the dentist leaves the room when you do the x-ray part, that's what we're dealing with with the sun. So think of it like an x-ray. And, and that's why protecting yourself from the sun, even if it's just being in the shade, that's a really good start. Thank you, Philip Duncan. And it just reminds me that mad dogs and Englishmen go out in the midday sun. We've got to stop it. Yeah, that's right. Go to the pub instead. Barbara Kuriger explains the benefits of the rural games for teenagers where they learn about artificial resuscitation and other health-related benefits, plus a meeting with telecom and connectivity in rural areas. Good morning, Barbara Courier. You're on the way north. What have you been up to lately? I think you might have been down at the uh, Canterbury A&P show, watching children, doing something with children. What did you learn from that lot? Good morning, Neville. Yeah, um, at the moment, uh, I'm just in transit from uh, Wellington. I'm heading to Palmerston North today, actually. I've been down at the Canterbury show. It was fantastic, actually. So I've been part of the Rural Games since its initiation when we started them in Queenstown uh, back before I was an MP. So uh, I resigned from it when I went into Parliament, but I still judge the Rural Sports Awards and still very close to it. So it's held in Palmerston North every year now. They are currently going around and running Clash of the Colleges uh, and they had 16 different stations with four kids in each team, so they had two different age levels. Uh, and they go around and they have to do things like, you know, sorting wool, doing things like a bit of uh, resuscitation and first aid, a bit of fencing, um, a whole range of things that they get up to. 16 different stations, a little bit like agri-kids, if you like, if people have ever seen agri-kids, um, you know, going on. It's, it's just lots of different stations where they get to uh, test and measure out their skills, and it's fantastic. And it's good to see these um, intermediate and secondary schools having a go at the clash of the colleges the other day. So that's mostly where I spent my time at the A&P show. It was um, good to see it going because uh, Canterbury did have a rough couple of years with COVID where I think they cancelled it two years in a row and that stung them pretty hard. So they're back in business again, which is great. Um, I've really just been moving around uh, the electorate over the last couple of weeks while we're waiting for the formation of a government and Parliament to start again. But I've also taken the opportunity uh, to get out and about and... Um, take on a few invitations and one of them I did last night was I went to a lecture at Victoria University in Wellington around uh, the Antarctic and what's actually happening down there with the ice melts and there's a team going down there next week and they're going to be um, drilling down through the different you know geological features of history 
and try to find out where we've been before and what happened to various uh, ice shelves in the past. We seem to have a fairly good handle on where the temperatures had been sitting at that time. So it's just really interesting uh, science that they're doing, trying to make some predictions around what's going to happen to ice melt and water level rises and stuff. It was extremely interesting. I've been out um, with the Telecom Users Association, two ends. They've been talking about connectivity. Uh, as it relates to rural New Zealand, but also having conversations about AI and how that might work as well. So, I mean, it's a big topic at the moment, AI. I don't want to see me in a video talking that isn't me, so I'm not very keen on the whole human element of, you know, people pretending they're being someone else that they're not. But what I am keen on is some of the technology that we can use and certainly in the conservation role that I've been doing up until now, you can use AI for traps. So you can have a trap that will identify a possum, a stoat, a weasel, a feral cat and know exactly what to do with it. But if a kiwi was to walk into it, it would recognise that it was a kiwi and it wouldn't activate. And so I think, you know, there's some great opportunities with AI to fast forward some of our predator-free work without it having to be quite so manual as it has been in the past. And the other opportunity I took yesterday was I was out at uh, Papatapu Marae, which is not very far from between Raglan and Kapia. Some beautiful coastal land out there. We've got some beautiful marae. And they were putting together a health and well-being day for the community. I love these days where they bring lots of different groups into the room. They're able to do vaccinations, they're able to do tests, they line people up with cervical screening, bowel cancer testing, uh, hep C testing, you name it, it's all there. And so it's like a one-stop shop for people to take their uh, health needs because, you know, for a lot of people it's quite a long way to go to a doctor. So to bring it all into rural communities and give them a one-stop shop on one day so that their well-being needs can be taken care of. And then it's only then for a you know serious illness or, or sickness that people do need to uh, search out for a doctor or a hospital. It, it's a great new model. It's great for uh, Māori. It's great for rural. It's great for people that live remotely to think that all of those services come to them on the one day because otherwise they'd be all traipsing into a city and you'd never actually get all that done in one day anyway. So I think it's a great model for rural New Zealand and I'm a great advocate of that. So, yeah, lots of that going on. Neville plus uh, Tiki touring around my electorate and um, just um, waiting for the day that Parliament's going to be back in action. We'll be all waiting, but never mind, that's part of life. So thank you very much for that, Barbara. And to conclude today's program, here's Jim Hopkins and I discussing UV levels, melanoma, and why we should be taking more care when out in the midday sun because it's a killer. Oh, good evening, Jim Hopkins. Hello, young Nev. How are you? I'm fine. I'm just thinking no cowards, mad dogs and Englishmen go out in the midday sun would be a good point to start for melanoma New Zealand and probably a lot of the cancers. What's your thoughts on this one, Jim? Well, it may well be mad dogs and Englishmen, but uh, arguably, given the, uh, the fact that we are actually um, statistically, demonstrably, about four million miles closer to the sun than, pardon me, I've got a bit of a cold, the rest of the world, or the other side of the world, then maybe it's mad dogs and um, Australasians, Kiwis and Aussies, who uh, go out in the midday sun. And maybe uh, we should actually, well, definitely we should 
protect ourselves a little bit more than we have historically. There is, I suppose, the issue of um, getting a, enough sun to get your vitamin D up, right. levels up, but not too much as to trigger your melanoma risks. Um, so it's a, it's a fine line we have to walk. Anyway, press on. So I uh, just sort of thought, well, we should just talk a little bit about that. I don't know whether the East Coast might be a bit more prone to a bit more sun than we are over here on the West Coast in New Zealand. Yes, I think you're right. Um, I think you're right. The, um, the East Coast is supposedly drier and, and warmer. Certainly yeah. in the South Island, it's the West Coast that has a reputation for being rainy and overcast. But... Um, I've been in Taranaki a few times. You're, you're from the from the gorgeous Taranaki province, are you not? Oh yes, we are. Yep. You you are broadcasting to the world from Taranaki. That's right. From what's the famous Maunga, the great mountain? Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't think it's erupted for a while, so I'm not sure that you've been sort of shrouded in lava or or um, volcanic dust or anything of that nature, have you? No, but we can see signs of where it came out at the coast. Well, no. indeed, so can we all. But, um, but uh, no, I think you'd, you'd be fine up there. Besides, you've got all that oil in the sea just offshore. So you'd be able to warm yourselves up if it gets a bit cold anyway. Well, I say oil, I mean natural gas, but you know what I mean. Oh, yes, yes. So, uh, messages to people to be aware. Oh, and, yes, yes, and, yes, yes, indeed. And well, that's what I said at the start, Nev. I said a little bit of sunshine for the vitamin D. Oh, yes. But not enough to actually um, agitate the freckles and things on the, out, on the outer surface of the skin. And I've been very conscious of that for years, and I've taken appropriate precautions, or at least I hope I've taken appropriate precautions. I mean, I, I grew up at a time when... Um, we used to actually con- compete with each other to see who could get brownest over summer. And, of course, we all sort of started out um, and went red first yeah. and bronze later. Uh, even alone knows how much harm we were doing to ourselves. But, um, but you know, that, the, those days are past now. You um, driving around, you occasionally see small groups of school children often... Um, sort of outside or exterior learning experiences, and they're all rugged up like um, like sort of Eskimos in the sunshine, really. They've got hats that are with brims broader than your Aussie um, cork numbers, and, uh, I mean, socks pulled right up to the knee and shorts down right to the knee, so the only parts of the, of the body that actually get exposed to um, the sunlight at all are the fingernails and maybe the thumb. So we're taking extremely considerable precautions to actually ensure that, that people are okay. And, and look, on balance, it's the right approach, especially here for the reasons that we identified at the start of the show, that this part of the world is close to the sun. And also, as I understand it, the UV layer is thinner. Yeah. So, so there's more ultraviolet light gets through than, than is the case in the Northern Hemisphere. So it's a double whammy, really, and, and we've got two, twice as many reasons to be, to be cautious in terms of exposing ourselves to, un, to undue amounts of sunlight. And people just need to be aware that it is reflected off the surface of snow, water, 
Oh, yes. Yes, yes, yes. And your your forehead, Nev. As I understand it, you've got a very shiny forehead. The sun actually reflects off that piece. Some people tell me that they've driven past your place and they've seen you at the gate getting the mail and they've been momentarily blinded and nearly sort of went off the road. Oh, you're making me think of that song by the Inkspots. Go, little go, wind, go. I may have made that up, Nev. I may have made that up. I think you might have. But let's finish on something typical. Uh, it's been happening offshore on the cruise boats, bed bugs. Have you ever had any experience with those things? I don't think so, no. I mean, I remember the, all the brouhaha about bed bugs at the World Cup, the recent Rugby World Cup in yeah. France or in Paris. And I was trying to think, um, have I ever, you know, and because uh, I've, you know, travelled around quite a bit and ended up in quite a few hotels and motels and so on, doing Young Farmer of the Year competitions and all sorts of things of that nature, shooting television news stories and the like. Um, have, I, have I ever been sort of gobbled by bed bugs in such a way as to wake up in the morning sort of all red and itchy and and um, feeling aggrieved? And the answer is no, I can't remember a single incident or instance of that ever happening. So... Um, all I can say is, uh, I would not, I, I'm immensely relieved that I've never had close encounters with bed bugs. And I'm immensely hopeful that it will remain that, that way for the remainder of my days. Oh, well done, Mr. Hopkins, and thank you for that. That's very well, I'm so, difficult. I'm sorry. I'm sorry about the coughing, but I, yeah. I, may, I hope I made some sense in between. You certainly did, sir. Thank you, Jim. Well, that's my lot for today. Remember where to tune in next week and I'll talk to you again. Sayonara.
This show was made at Access Radio Taranaki with help from New Zealand On Air. To find more local content, go to our website, accessradiotaranaki.com.